Well, this weekend we're going to continue in the series, but we're going to talk and look at the greatest attribute of all, the Lamb. And I believe without this attribute, understanding and receiving all of the other characteristics and attributes of Christ, I don't think you can fully take advantage of them, the ones we've been looking at. The word lamb is in the Bible 104 times. It's in the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, 54 times. And in just the book of Revelation, it's in there 27 times. The rest are scattered out. But here's what I'm wanting to say. The majority of the time, the lamb is, is in the Bible, either in the first or the last of the Bible. So the Bible begins and ends with a lamb. And that's where we get the scripture, Jesus is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. So I want to show you some things about the lamb. So let's go back in time. Let's go back to Exodus, Exodus 29, 38. And this is what you shall offer on the altar, two lambs of the first year, day by day, continually. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. So then you had to offer a lamb every morning, every evening. The, the lamb you offered in the evening was to cover all the sins that you did during the day. The lamb you offered early in the morning was to cover all the sins you did at night or in the evening. So you had to offer two lambs every day. So think about how many lambs that would make up over thousands of years in, until Jesus came. So my question for you, City Hope, is did you offer your lamb today? Do we need to continue offering lambs? Or has the lamb already been offered? Now, I want to back up and talk about something a little bit that most of you know. You've heard me teach on this before. But I want to talk about the law. In the Old Testament, the law was a schoolmaster that pointed us to grace. Everything in the Old Covenant, Old Testament, pointed to Jesus fulfilling it in the New Covenant or the New Testament. And because of that, we can have understanding of what we do and which way we go. And in some ways... Maybe some of us have brought the old into the new, but we've not seen the fulfillment of the new. In other words, that every day you're still like, I've got to offer up lambs every day, two in the morning, or one in the morning, one in the evening. In other words, let me say it this way. Growing up, I grew up in church, and I, I grew up uh, in, in, a, in, a, uh, in a time where we were told that you need to confess your sins every day. And, and I believe it's a good thing that when we sin, we confess our sins because the book of Hebrews tells us that it cleanses our conscience so that we don't serve God through dead works. And if you continue to walk in unrepented sin, then it does defile your conscience and that defiles your life. Here's my point. I, I was told, we were raised and taught and told to confess all my sins to be forgiven. And if I didn't confess all my sins, I wouldn't be forgiven. Well, that reminds me of 1 John 1, 19, 1 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So he's the only one who's justified to be able to forgive us our sins and then cleanse us. I'm not saying we don't need to confess our sins. I'm saying, what if you forget one? Is it still forgiven? Or is your passage way to heaven based upon your memory? If that's the case, a lot of us are in trouble, right? I mean, can you remember the sin you committed in 2001? Some of us can't remember what we did last week. You know what I mean? So, so it's serious. So, you know, I was told you're, you better confess your sins, and if you forget one, you, you won't go to heaven. It's called a works mentality. It's still around today. So I remember as a kid hearing some of the church saints praying like this, Lord, please forgive us of all the sins we can't remember. And I thought, wow, that's it. That's the catch-all prayer. That gets them all. But then I would hear the saints pray a prayer like this. Lord, forgive us of the sins of omission and the sins of commission. 
In other words, Lord, forgive us for the sins we meant to do and the sins we didn't mean to do. Is that what it takes? I mean, for me, does that mean I need to, I can't remember, probably I need to write it down, take a notebook and a tablet and write, I meant to do this one, I didn't mean to do that. Or is it based on the lamb and what he did? Or is it based on what I do? So in this message, I want to examine the lamb. So first, the lamb was provided. So please catch this statement. It's the key statement in this message. You cannot provide any way for you to get to heaven. You can't do it. God had to provide the way to get to heaven. You cannot provide a way to get to heaven. There's a story that you're familiar with in Genesis. It's in 22 and 7. It's about Isaac, who's about 12 or 13 years old. His father, Abraham, he's the promised son. And and God has told him to take him to the top of the mountain and sacrifice him. And in verse 7, but Isaac, the son, spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, son. He said, Look, here's the fire and here's the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering so the two of them went went together this was a difficult question for abraham he's walking up the hill believing god wants him to sacrifice his son he's heard from god but he doesn't know god's ultimate plan he doesn't know what god is going to do when he gets to the top and his son asked well where's the sacrifice dad where and he said well god will provide the lamb but watch god did not provide the lamb that day in fact god didn't even provide a lamb that day he, he provided a ram. It was a mature ram because his horns were caught in the brush. But Abraham said, God will provide the lamb. Well, well did God do that? Well, fast forward 2,000 years and you hear John say, I saw Jesus coming toward me and said, behold, the lamb of God that, who takes away the sin of the world. So God did provide the lamb. So to that statement, let me say this. God provided the way for you to be forgiven to be saved, to get to heaven. God provided it. But here's what we all do. It's it's just in our nature. It's our tendency to always try to provide our own way. We come up with our own thoughts, our own plans. Maybe let's just take, for example, you do something wrong. You sin and you think, well, I feel really bad about that, so I'm going to beat myself up. I'm going to hang my head. I'm I'm going to hang on this for a week or so. Maybe God will know how sorry I really am. So we just continue to provide for our own redemption. But I'm telling you that God provided it, and you can't. And it all started with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden where they sinned. They tried to cover up their own sins. They tried to they hid from each other. They, they, they hid from God. And we try to hide it from each other, and we try to hide it from God. But we can, we, we can do everything we want to, but we can't cover ourselves. It's the blood that covers us. And even if we forget we're covered, And even when we're not perfect, we're covered. It's always been about grace, yet some people were were saved by, you know, they they, they think that in the Old Testament you were saved by the law and you were saved by the grace in the New Testament, but that's not true. It's always been grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So one examination, the lamb's provided. Secondly, the lamb was pure. Exodus 12, 5, the first part of the verse says, your lamb shall be without blemish. Now, the word without is a combination of two words, with and out. And then they they take the word blemish and connect it, so you have three words in our English translation. In the Hebrew, it's actually one word. It appears 91 times in the Old Testament, and here's what it means. Without blemish, defect, or fault. But the root word 
of this word means 100% sure. So here's what the writer is saying in Exodus, that your lamb shall be without blemish. He's saying the lamb that you offer has to be 100% pure without defect or fault. Well, let's look at it in the New Testament because Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 19, but with, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now, this is interesting because this is a Greek word. New Testament's written in the Greek, but it's also, it also means the same as the Hebrew word we just read. It means 100% pure without defect or fault. Let me show it to you one more time in the New Testament because this will help you understand grace. Ephesians 5, 27, Paul wrote that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy without blemish. The church, that's us. 100% pure, without defect, our fault. Now, here's how I've heard this preached. Most of the time growing up, I heard this preached like this. You need to get holy. You need to be holy. Jesus is going to return. And we need to get our act together and be holy, or the second coming may be postponed because we don't have a holy church. I believe we should live holy. I'm not saying we shouldn't live holy. But we will never be holy enough without the blood of the Lamb. And the way we are without blemish, without defect, without fault, is that the blood of the Lamb covers our sins. It's not us pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps and trying harder and making more rules and regulations to try to do our best. Yes, we want to live righteously on this earth, and we're told to live righteous lives. But many times people, especially in the Bible Belt, we've got it backwards. I grew up with it backwards. In other words, if you live righteous, then you'll be holy, set apart for Christ, and then you'll be righteous in God's sight. That's backwards. That's not true. Because we're righteous in God's sight, we live righteously. We don't become righteous in his sight because we live righteously. We live righteously because we're righteous in his sight by the blood of the Lamb. Did you get that? Do I need to say it again? Did you understand it? Because we have to see. We, we be, don't become righteous in his sight because we live righteously. We can't live righteously enough. We can't. It's because of the lamb. So the lamb was provided. The lamb was pure. Here's the third part. One of the most important parts is the lamb was perfect. Leviticus twenty-two twenty-one. Whoever offers a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord to fulfill his vow or free will offering from the cattle or the sheep, it must be perfect to be accepted There shall be no defect in it. And believe it or not, that part, no defect, comes from the original Hebrew word without blemish. So he's added something else that it should be perfect to be accepted. So let me ask you, be honest, you're in church. How many of you are perfect? Okay. Anybody know anyone perfect? I had one guy raise his hand. He said, yeah, I I know somebody perfect. I've never met him, but it's my wife's ex-husband. And that'll seep across in a minute, maybe. There's no one that's perfect. But if I can believe in what he did for me, then I can be accepted. The lamb's perfect, not me. Before Jesus came to the earth, the head of every household would bring a lamb once a year to Passover to Jerusalem, and and they had to bring a lamb without blemish. And they had to go offer it to the priest, and before it's offered up, the priest would examine the lamb. So you just imagine these guys walking days across the wilderness, across the the country, and they're carrying this lamb, and you wonder what's on their mind. 
If it were today, this is what would be on their mind. I hope the priest doesn't ask me how much I've read the Torah or the Bible this year. I hope the priest doesn't ask me about my synagogue attendance because it's kind of up and down. Were there any thoughts in his mind about his performance? No. Let me tell you why. Because he knew, but I don't know that all of us know. He knew. The man was not examined. The lamb was examined. If you get this, it'll change your life. The man's not examined. The lamb's examined. And listen, when Christ came and all of this is coming down to this lamb being offered as a sacrifice, the the whole world examined the lamb. And, 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 And that world at that time was limited, but the whole world and the authority of the leader of that world at that time looked at him and said, I find no fault in him. No blemish, no defect, no fault. And, and, and guess, guess what? Someone else examined the lamb other than the authority of the government. It was the father. Yeah, he examined him after he was on the earth. You remember, he, he looked and he said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Let me tell you how that translates. I find no fault in him. He is the acceptable offering. That's why God sent his son, because he's the acceptable offering, and, and, and there's no fault in him. I'm not examined. You're not examined. The lamb is examined. But if I believe in the lamb, and, and, and let me say it this way. Some of you have lived really, really good lives, good people, moral people. But the Bible says if you miss one thing, you fail the whole test. If you break one law, you, you, you're guilty of all of them. No one can pass the test. So the lamb was provided when we couldn't provide one for ourselves. Why? Think about this. This is not something man just wrote up. This is something that God instilled by the Holy Spirit for man to write down for us to understand. Why? Because of God's mercy. That's why. That's why all of this is extended to you. Let me remind you of the attributes of God. And and the attributes of God are not about the things he does, but the things that he is. Not the things that he has, because if he just has mercy, he might lose it or use it up. The reason God is merciful is because he is mercy. He doesn't have mercy. He is mercy. And watch, this is, this is the curveball coming at you. And God is just because he's justice. How, how can God be just and merciful at the same time? But you, you have to understand, watch, mercy is not giving you what you deserve. Justice is giving you what you deserve. Then grace comes along, and grace is giving you what you don't deserve. So how in the world can God be just and merciful at the same time? Well, let's look at that. God is just. Whatever God is, he is that fully. He isn't just part justice. He's completely just, fully just. So when we look at God, and we look at a facet of God, and we see something so incredible like grace that's too good to be true, we look at it and say, wow, this is incredible, God. Or we look at the love of God, the agape of God. This is incredible. Or we look at, at, at this justice of God or the righteousness. It's so incredible. It, it's just like looking at a diamond and, you can, and it's in one piece and you can turn it under the lights and under, uh, under, under the lens and you can see all these different facets at, at, at certain times. So that's the way God is. But his justice isn't war, warring against his mercy. And, and we all hope his mercy is a little stronger than his justice. But no, he's 100% justice. He's 100% mercy. So how do we understand God's justice? Well, let's think about the word first. Justice. It means morally equal. And when you go 
deeper into the root word and actually refers to the word scales. The way you find if something is moral or equitable, you would have a scale and see if it's equal. Most of you have seen at the courthouse or you've seen a picture of the woman and, and you know, Lady Justice, she's holding the scales. This is what our justice system is based on, being equal or not. But let me explain how we think about it. Many times we believe that the prosecutor puts all, the ca- all their case on one side of the scale and then the defense attorney comes along and puts their case on the other side of the scale and whichever one has more evidence tips the scale. That's not justice. And that's not what the word means. If you look closely at the scales, of the, of you, you'll see the word justice is on one side of the scale. So here's what happens. The prosecution puts all their evidence on one side of the scale Then the defense puts their evidence on the same side of the scale. And to make up the full picture of what happened, then both of them are weighed against the justice side of the scale. So if a person's innocent, then it's equal because justice said this is an innocent person. Or if it's not, then justice said this is a guilty person. But but how does that relate to us? Here's how it relates because I want to explain to you that not only is it God's mercy that you get to heaven, but it's also God's justice that we get to heaven. So let's look at our misunderstanding then in the natural because here's what's happening. God is going to put, we think, God's going to put all my good on one side and all my bad on the other side and hopefully I have more good and I I can go to heaven. That's not true. Here's what God does. God puts all my good and all my bad on one side of the scale and then justice goes to the other side of the scale and remember, God is justice. So on the other side of the scale, Father God steps on the scale. Now, do you think that all of your good works for all of your life could move the scale when Father God is on the other side? I don't think so. It'd be like a trillion tons on one side and a feather on the other side. And then you have those who, yeah, but I've been a Christian for 25 years. Well, then add 25 feathers on your side. (laughs) You're not going to move the scale. You can jump up and down. You cannot move that scale. Here's why. Listen. Because you are morally inequitable with God. All of us are morally inequitable with God. So what do I do? Watch. When you get a glimpse of how holy the lamb is and you finally agree with God, I'm a sinner. I cannot get to heaven like this. I'm unequal and there's nothing I could do to meet your moral standards. I'm a sinner and I'm going to ask you to forgive me and cleanse me, then you're asking Jesus, the lamb, to come into your life and save you. So remember, the father is on one side of the scale. When you ask Jesus into your life, the lamb steps on your side of the scales, and the scales come up equal with the father, and the father says, you're justified. You're justified. That's how you get to heaven, because the lamb is on the scales with you. But guess what? It's the justice of God that sentences me to heaven. See, we're real quick, you know, to say justice, you know, God's justice will sentence a sinner to hell. But God's justice sentences a repentant person to heaven. Because out of that same little little illustration, you're standing in a courtroom, here's Jesus. And he finally says, not my will, but your will. In other words, Jesus, the lamb said, I'm going to die. I'm going to die in your place. 
I'm going to die in the place of people. And the father said, okay, son, you die, but you will live again. But why would God do that for us? Second thing about the attribute of God is God is mercy. Mercy. He, he doesn't have mercy. He is mercy. Here's what that tells me. It tells me mercy has no beginning and has no end. Because God is infinite, God has no limits, no boundaries, so mercy has no limits and no boundaries. Watch. And no, no, no matter how wicked a person is, they can receive the mercy of God. A few years ago, I was in, in Columbia preaching in a church, and, 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 uh, and it was a large church, and, and I got to meet one of the pastoral uh, staff members, and, and he was a he was, uh, I would say, uh, an assassin with the drug cartel and all that. And I don't know how many people he murdered and shot out. But, but he, he, got, he found Jesus. He got saved. Now he's a pastor. And he's an evangelist. And I, I, mean, I was blown away at this guy's background. And I wanted to talk about the background more. And I said, how did you do that? He said, I didn't. Jesus did it. Jesus did it. So it doesn't matter the wickedness. God's mercy will never increase and it will never decrease. His mercy is perfect, perfect mercy. It can't get better and it's never going to end. Well, how long is this mercy going to endure? I'm glad you asked. Psalms 136. Let's see if you catch on quicker than the last group. This is a slow group. Let's see if this is the advanced group. Ready? Psalms 136 and 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And the congregation said? Yeah, it's okay. Verse 2. There's 26 verses. Don't make me do all of them. Verse 2, oh, give thanks to the God of gods. <coughs> oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords. That whole chapter, 26 times, says his mercy endures forever. How long does God's mercy endure? <coughs> forever. It never stops. But wait, let's define mercy. Today, our definition of mercy is to have compassion. It's not an adequate definition without the Hebrew and the Greek attached to it. And, and, and many think this. Many think that we, we now live in the age of mercy. But God's mercy didn't change from Old Testament to New Testament. His mercy never changes. So mercy could be best defined as compassionate. Compassionate. It's an adjective that describes a noun. We say he's a compassionate person. But there's another word, a derivative that is spelled the same as compassionate, but it's pronounced differently, and it's a verb, compassionate. We don't use it much, but it means to do something about the compassion you feel. When we are compassionate and we do something, we have compassionated. For instance, serve projects that we do. There's compassion that you feel, and you compassionate. Our, our, your money, your talents, your time, the, the ability that we have, you, you, you're giving, you're compassionated. Watch. God did what was in his ability to do to save us. What was his ability? Mercy. Mercy. And it's active. He activated. In other words, God compassionated and sent the lamb. And the lamb was enough, the lamb is enough. Well, maybe, maybe you don't read your Bible enough or pray enough or attend church enough, but it's not about that. You hear me? That's all good things, and it helps us grow and, and have friends and relationships. and all. That's good, but that's not what saves us. So what saves us? 
Well, I'm going to show you. I'm going to put it on the screen because I want you to remember it. We're saved by grace through faith, and what the Lamb did was enough. I'm going to say it again. We are saved by grace through faith, and what the Lamb did was enough. And, and, and look, yeah, that's a good place to hand clap. So right there, I'm going to push the timeout button. Right there, everyone listening to me online at the campuses, at the correctional facilities, at Malvis, everybody's listening to me. I want to give you an opportunity to give your life to God. How? By accepting what the Lamb did for you so you can quit trying to work your way to God. Because you can't do it. No one can. And I know this will make the guys a little uneasy, but just pretend you're in your lazy boy and you take a little nap this afternoon. But just, I want you to close your eyes, everybody. Every campus, just close your eyes a moment. Just, just take a moment with God. In that moment, I'm asking you to be honest with God. And, and, and if you're listening to me and you say, Pastor, I'm not sure that I'm saved. I'm not sure if I died today, I would go to heaven. Well, you can make it sure, and the gift is the free gift that you can receive today. And if what I've just asked you, and you're not sure, and you have question marks, I want you to lift your hand high to the Lord right now. All across the room. I'm sure at the campuses also. Everybody's heads bowed, eyes closed. If you lifted your hand, or if you know in your heart, you're not a believer. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. You can just pray this, pray this in your heart if you want to. God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm not perfect. And I ask you to forgive me for all of my sin and to come into my life today. I receive you as my Lord and my Savior. And I thank you, Jesus, the Lamb, for saving me today. Amen. Now, you can look at me. Now, I, I want everybody to give a hand clap. Everybody raise their hands. And, and, and I never count hands, and, and, and I never really get the, the report of what takes place here in the front until later and whatever, whatever. But let me tell you something. If you raise your hand, you prayed that prayer, all of heaven knows about it. Heaven's rejoicing. Heaven knows about it. It's that important. Well, what if just one hand, if one hand went up, it's that important. One hand is that important. One person, if they're in the correctional facility, if, if they're at another, if they're online, one hand, one prayer, it's worth it. It's worth it. That's what Jesus the Lamb came for. Now, here's what I want you to do because I'm not, I'm not finished. I want you to join me in communion. Before we go there, though, listen, I want to share something with you. Communion is not a magical formula that works like taking two aspirin. It's a spiritual act, must be viewed as such, and it's a reverent act, and it must be received in a spirit of humility and purity. So communion must not become a ritual or a routine that's enacted without thought or consideration. And a person should never partake in communion in an unsaved condition or as a careless ritual. Before receiving communion, examine yourselves inwardly. Is there any sin against God, any sin against the fellow man? And what I want you to do, if you'll, if you'll look in the seat in front of you, if there's not a seat in front of you, it'll be under your seat, there's a cup. 
And on the top layer, there's a little piece of plastic. If you'll pull that back, you'll find a little piece of bread. I want you to take that piece of bread and just hold it in your hand. I'm going to lead you through this. There'll be places I'm going to pray and there'll be places I'm going to exhort you. So as you hold that bread in your hand, in a moment, you're going to break it and then you're going to take it and eat it. So listen as I pray. Father, thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to redeem mankind. In receiving the true bread from heaven, you have imparted into us eternal life. You've opened our eyes of understanding of the new covenant. And Lord, I ask you to bless this bread that represents the body of the lamb. And we are going to break it with Jesus who is here now in the person of the Holy Spirit. And that's why it's called communion. So please break the bread and partake of the bread. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Now, if you take the cup, there's another layer. Be careful when you pull it back so you don't spill the juice. So when you get it open, just look at me just a minute. I'm going to pray over this also. When God's setting his people free from Egypt, slavery, sin, the lamb's blood was applied to the doorpost and that restrained the destroying angel, saved their household. And in the house, they're eating the roasted lamb and that brought them physical healing. So an entire nation, the Jewish nation, is saved from death and they're healed. That night. How much more can the blood and the body of Christ protect believers today after the lamb has actually come. So, Father, I ask you to bless the fruit of the vine that represents the precious blood of the lamb. Partake of the cup. Lord, as you receive this communion, I ask you to bring strength and health to us spiritually, emotionally, and physically because of the new covenant that was sealed through the sufferings of Jesus, the Lamb. And amen. Now watch. Just as our confession led to salvation, whether it was today, last week, or 10 years ago, your confession led to salvation. And God honors our prayers of repentance. He honors it. So likewise, God honors our act of faith when we partake of communion. And here's why. The reason the bread and the cup are so powerful is because communion is a reminder to God of the lamb that he's given. From my heart, I'm reminding God of what he did for me. He gave his only begotten son, his only begotten son that came to this earth. And finally, he said, not my will, but your will. And he died. And when I'm doing communion, it touches a soft spot in the father's heart because it reminds him of what his son did. But it also shows to him how much we love the lamb. 
Now, those of you who raised your hands, those of you who prayed a prayer today to accept Christ, I'm going to ask you to do one more thing. We're going to have leaders in our, of our church come to the front in just a moment. The pastor will come and we'll stand. We'll be dismissed. And if you prayed that prayer, I want you to come up to one of our believers and say, I, I gave my life to the Lord today. Well, why do you want us to do that? Because the Bible says if we believe in our hearts, then when you prayed that prayer, that's what you had to do to become a believer. You had to believe in your heart. And then it says, and confess with your mouth. Confess what? You're simply confessing to, to another person, I gave my life to the Lord. I gave my life to Jesus, the Lamb. I want you to come and let us pray with you. And if you have any other needs, we want to pray for you. It won't take but a few minutes, I promise you. So Lord... As we sing, Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, I pray you will draw every person who prayed that prayer and maybe even those who were drawn to pray it but didn't to come for prayer. Any person who has any needs, may they come for prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.